name is Marianne Williamson, a Democratic candidate. And uh, this article appeared <clears throat> in the news. Many were quick to mock 2020 Democratic candidate Miriam Williamson after she appeared to credit the power of prayer and meditation earlier this month when Hurricane Dorian turned away from the east coast of the United States. But Fox News' Tammy Bruce claims Williamson may be on to something. She was widely mocked for her idea of the power of the mind impacting a storm on its way, but there's a power to people coming together in prayer. Prayer, in large part, is the power of the mind and the decision that we make to try to engage to make things better. But she was mocked for that, <clears throat> strangely enough. Well, if you came this morning uh, without having ever had an experience of Gethsemane, you've never wrestled with the angel of the Lord late into the night like Jacob of old or Jesus himself and struggled with prayer, then you might have difficulty identifying with my sermon this morning. But if you have, then it may be helpful in furthering your understanding of Jesus' experience in the garden. First of all, <clears throat> I want to take you to our text. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell, fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. <clears throat> In the Garden of Gethsemane, um, it's an olive grove. An olive tree never dies. You could cut that tree off at its base, and it would send up a new shoot. It, you haven't killed the tree. Some of these uh, olive trees in the garden um, may have, some believe, been witnesses to Jesus' experience many, many years ago. It's possible. Oh, my Father, if it be possible, God within the realm of infinite possibility, may you let this cup pass from me. This is one of my favorite pictures. Many artists have captured Jesus in Gethsemane. This was the picture that hung in our living room all the years of my growing up days back in Des Moines, Iowa. Mother made sure that that was a witness in our living room. Many artists, here is Jesus again, looking up serenely, confidently into heaven. Again, a picture close to the one that's on our bulletin. Let this cup pass from me. I'm going to say more about that cup now as we go along. Here is a, an artist who has captured the picture and included the cup in his, in his uh, portrait. 
of Jesus praying, let this cup, what cup, pass from me? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Now, in the Jewish Passover feast, there are four cups. Cup of deliverance, cup of redemption, cup of blessing, and a cup of promise. And it goes like this. Those four cups, two are taken before the lamb is eaten on the Passover. Two are taken after the lamb is eaten. They are taken from uh, Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 through 8. The Jews took this passage to apply to the cups they partook in the Passover. The cup of deliverance, verse 6, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. There will be an exodus. Redemption, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. The third cup is called the cup of blessing. I will take you as my own people. Now they are a nation under God, and I will be your God. And then the fourth cup is the cup of promise. I will bring you into the land I swore to give you. That's the cup of blessing. The cup of blessing is cup number three. This is the cup that Jesus took to institute the Lord's Supper. This is the cup we partake of just a few moments ago. We partook of it. The cup of blessing, Paul says, that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? His suffering? It's a suffering cup. The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? So we know that that's the cup that he instituted for us to partake as we commune with him each Lord's day. Here he is holding that cup in his hand, symbolic of the suffering that awaits. Here uh, an artist has captured the angel, the Bible says, who came and comforted him, aiding him, assisting him in his suffering in Gethsemane. The serpent returns. Here an artist has painted the serpent coming back to tempt Jesus to avoid going to the cross. An angel came, Luke 22 says, to strengthen him. Here we have him sweating great drops of blood, as the New Testament says. And again, the angel accompanying him. Here again, the angel supporting him as he suffers in the garden. Rembrandt, the artist of shadows, shows an angel again comforting Jesus. Again, an angel comforting Jesus. Artist after artist has captured that angelic visitor, This is a picture of our son, Eric. Years ago, we were vacationing up in Wisconsin, and uh, Jan and I were in the cabin there. Uh, Our two two children at that time, Stephanie and Eric, were outside playing. And uh, each morning, I think he was about five. Jan, was he five? How? Four. Four years old. Okay, and... um, he had a prayer that he always prayed at the breakfast table, and his prayer went like this. Lord Jesus, thank you for this lovely day. Help me to be good and kind. And this morning, he added this to his prayer, and help me catch a bird. Well, we didn't think anything more about it. He'd never added that to a prayer. Middle of the afternoon, he comes through the front door of the cabin announcing, I caught a bird! I caught a bird! And here is the picture. He used to hate having his picture taken, but I said, well, Eric, would you let me take your picture? Well, okay! 
He was ready for the picture this time. Well, it was a cedar waxwing. And uh, I thought, well, there must be some explanation for this. He's never prayed the prayer, and he catches the bird. Maybe it's wounded. Well, I went over, reached out, and it pecked me. It seemed, it seemed to be a pretty normal, healthy bird. And so still looking for a reasonable explanation, I said, son, how did you catch that bird? This was his answer. Well, it just flew down, and I reached out and grabbed it. Is that a coincidence? Was God really, really concerned about my son catching a bird? He stepped outside the door, let go, and it flew off as normal as it could be. And still searching for an explanation. How can this be? How can the big, desperate prayers that we pray not be answered? And this little child's prayer catch a bird be answered I wonder sometimes if we may be succumbing to the world's skepticism about prayer just as the lady was mocked this week Ludwig Feuerbach in the 19th century a philosopher, German philosopher attempted to completely psychologize religion he said all your religious beliefs are just projections mental wishes Uh, His definition of prayer goes like this. Prayer is the Christian talking to himself and saying to himself, I wish that what I wish were true. So there is no contact into another parallel universe we call the kingdom of God. There is no prayer that reaches the throne room of heaven, according to Feuerbach. And then who hasn't heard of Madeline Murray O'Hare and her attack on prayer and religion in the classroom of our public schools. And she says, you Christians, you can't face the grim realities of life and you treat your faith like a crutch. You treat God like some sort of heavenly bellhop and you pull on a chain down here and expect him to scurry around upstairs and take, <clears throat> uh, take care of a not very well organized hotel down here. Madeline Murray O'Hare. The disciples themselves, I think, were troubled on the subject of prayer. They came to him one day and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. When they know how to pray, they have over 400 prayers in the Old Testament. Jesus could have said, well, just tie into one of those. Or 150 psalms. Many of the psalms are prayers. Well, just recite one of the psalms. No, he gave what we call the model prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. If you look carefully at that, you see Jesus moving from praise to God into personal petition, personal request. I've thought sometimes of measuring the prayers that we pray against the Bible prayers. I think the vast percentage of biblical praying is given over in praising God. But most of our prayers, the percentage to personal requests for personal benefit. Well, the question of God's answering prayers for me remain. The requirements of God's answer to prayer seem imposing. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Whatsoever you ask in my name believing, that will be done. You ask, James says, and receive not because you 
ask selfishly, wanting to squander the blessing. Jesus gives us the parable of importunity where there is continual knocking at the heavenly door until finally the Lord of the house responds to the persistent prayer. Then we have the parable uh, or the story of the Pharisee, the prayer of the proud and the publican, the prayer of humility, which God hears. And First Peter says, your prayers are hindered because you men are not honoring your wives. Maybe that's a block to prayer. But my question remains, how can I pray with purely selfless motive in the righteous manner with the persistence and intensity of belief, the longevity of my prayer so that now I can be assured God has got to answer my prayer. I've heard sermons on prayers, uh, I think, <clears throat> that go, uh, <clears throat> God uh, answers prayers in three ways. Some prayers he answers yes, some prayers he answers no, and some prayers he answers wait a while, the time is not right. My problem is with point number two in those sermons, his no. When he says no to things that I have prayed for night after night, year after year, for things I believed were right in the sight of God, and his answer has been no. I think of a little old lady in the Oklahoma Dust Bowl. The crops are drying up. Some of the farmers are going to have to leave. The church decides to get together and pray for rain. And one little old lady comes to the prayer service with her umbrella. She believes it's going to rain. But my concern this morning is what happens when the church prays for rain and it still doesn't rain. What do you do then? I admire the lady's faith, but what do you do then? This... um, now, this is, what I, this is a problem-solution sermon, okay? I'm developing the problem. I'll get to the solution, so stay with me. This problem was made most poignant for me in a novel that I read many, many years ago, a novel entitled Of Human Bondage. It's a novel written by a famous English novelist by the name of Somerset Maugham. Somerset Maugham lost his Christian faith. In this novel... He describes a young man by the name of Philip. Philip uh, has a crippling infirmity, has a club foot. And his parents have died, and his uncle, who is a rector in the English church, has adopted Philip. And to compensate for his crippling infirmity, Philip becomes a prodigious reader of anything he can get his hands on, he reads. And he gets a copy of his uncle's old uh, New Testament, and he reads these verses Whatsoever you ask in my name, believing, that will be done. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed and say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, it'll be done. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. And so he comes to his uncle and he says, what do these scriptures mean? His uncle says, just what they say. So he gets the idea of the healing of his club foot. Mom describes how the suffering Philip experienced with high school kids, you know, how they can be sometimes very cruel, make fun of him and mock him, how he longs to be able to kick the ball as well as the other boys are able to kick the ball. Why? 
when he goes down to the pool where he won't have to scurry down to the pool before them and hide his foot, his crippled foot in the water so they won't see it and make fun of him. He sets the night of the miracle to be the night before he's to return to school for the fall term. Mom said every night when Philip prayed, he would pull his nightshirt up over his knees so that his bare knees would touch the floor, thinking that if he prayed in discomfort, maybe God would be more attentive to his prayers. For the night of the miracle, Mom says Philip took his nightshirt off and shivered in the cold as he prayed that last night for the miracle. With great difficulty, he finally got to sleep. He was awakened the next morning when Aunt Louise came up and she threw back the curtain. The sunlight flooded his room. His his first impulse was to reach down and grab hold of his foot. And then mom said, Philip hobbled down the stairs as he had always done. He sat very sullen and quiet at the breakfast table, then off to school without a word. Several days went by. He came back to his uncle and he asked his uncle again, what do those scriptures mean? Ask and you shall receive and so on. His uncle said, just what they say. He said, suppose, <clears throat> suppose you had asked for something and it wasn't given. Well, his uncle said, we would think you didn't have enough faith. Philip thought, well, that's probably it. I just didn't have enough faith. But I believed he was going to heal me. How could I have more faith? Oh, well. Maybe it's like Aunt Louisa tells me about the birds in the park. You can catch the birds in the park if you sprinkle salt on their tail, but you never can get close enough to get the salt on the bird's tail. Maybe prayer is like that. Philip lost his faith. Somerset mom lost his faith. I think how unfortunate that mom did not put in that novel someone to help Philip in his dark hour. His struggle, his Gethsemane. For our solution now, I bring you to Gethsemane. It was the 14th of Nisan, fast approaching a Jewish holiday, one of the high points in the Jewish year, the Passover feast. Jesus, the Bible says, set his face to go to Jerusalem. Against the counsel of his apostles, they knew trouble would await in Jerusalem, but he was going there. On the way, Judas Iscariot, who had the treasury money, he would be the one to go in and purchase the Passover lamb. I like the way one commentator put it. Judas went in, he purchased a Passover lamb, and he sold one. Peter and John prepare the lamb for the Passover feast. And then the two cups are drunk before the lamb, and then comes cup number three, the cup of blessing. Jesus takes that cup, and he elevates it in Jewish tradition, and he says to those before him, this cup is the new covenant, the new testament in my blood, which I soon will shed for you here, all of you, drink of it. Then the Bible says, they left the upper room, they go down across the Kedron Brook, and as they go He brings that sermon that John would never forget, the sermon of comfort. I go away, but I will come again and take you there so that you may be with me. 
don't despair when you see me leave. Then down in Gethsemane, he asks the three to wait with him and watch and pray. And he goes a little further and falls on his face in the garden. You don't have the picture of serene and confident Jesus looking up into heaven. You have him in desperation, crying, praying desperately. Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Prayer is a cry in the night. A night of desperation, a night of sin and a night of suffering, a night of an impending Roman crucifixion with all of its diabolical savagery. It's not just a crucifixion, folks. It's torture. He was tortured. Prayer is a cry in the night. Drives him to his dust. You don't have... what, What you have is, if it be possible, God, within the realm of infinite possibility, isn't there a way... I could go through this without having to suffer the cup. Well, God's answer is, sure. In the realm of infinite possibility, I could choose another way, but the answer is no. You will suffer. And um, if Jesus, if God had chosen in another way, I thought immediately of an Old Testament story that would have to be revised. Years ago... I preached a sermon in our college chapel on Abraham and Isaac, and I missed the point. I don't want you to miss it this morning, so I'm going to make it. This is what I call my sledgehammer brawl in a sermon. I want you to get the point. Abraham, God says, take your son Isaac and sacrifice him. And the Bible says uh, how very much it seems to show how Isaac looks like Jesus, the only begotten son of his father, the son his father loved, the son of promise, the son who carries on his back the altar wood for the sacrifice. And on the way to Moriah, Isaac turns to Abraham and asks, Father Abraham, where is the sacrifice? Abraham says to Isaac, And this is often, I think, mistranslated in many of the translations of our Old Testament. He does not say the Lord will provide for himself the sacrifice. The Hebrew literally says the Lord will provide himself the sacrifice. Then you know how just before he kills his own son, his hand is stayed by an angelic visitor, And the bleating of a ram heard caught in the thicket is heard behind them. And the ram is taken. Isaac's bonds are cut. He is set free. And the ram is sacrificed on the altar. Why a ram? Let me tell you why a ram. Not a lamb, a ram. A ram is very expensive. And God wanted his people to know That sin is very costly. Now here is the point. You and I are Isaac. Jesus Christ is that ram. For you and me, there is a substitute for him. No substitute. He must suffer and he must die. That the Father will let the Son suffer the torments of sin 
and abandonment is more, is much more than Jesus desires. I think, I think the writer of Hebrews has captured that significant moment in Gethsemane when Hebrews 5, 7 reads, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard for his godly fear. Though he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He was heard, but he still had to drink the cup of suffering. I don't understand. Let me explain. I'm going to use an illustration. Uh, Let's see. Okay. St. Augustine, 400 A.D. Uh, Saint, yes, he was sainted by uh, the Roman Catholic Church, but he wasn't always a saint. And a matter of fact, in his youth, in his teenage years, in the catalog of sin, he did it all. He learned that if you really wanted to get to the sin capital, uh, you set sail for Rome. Rome was the sin capital of the world. His mother was named Monica. Monica was one of the most godly, saint, <coughs> God-fearing, saintly women in the history of the church. Now, he's planning to go to Rome. He's in Africa. His mother is praying he won't make it. He's gathering money to buy the ticket to board the ship. His mother is praying that he won't make it across the Mediterranean to Rome. He boards the ship. He sails across the Mediterranean to Rome, Italy. In Rome, he meets a man by the name of Ambrose. St. Ambrose, he would become... St. Ambrose converted Augustine to the, <clears throat> to the Christian faith. He sent Augustine back across the Mediterranean to the northern coast of Africa, where he became one of the most powerful, dynamic preachers in the history of the church. He set the church's theological stage for the next 1,000 years. In a book entitled The Confessions of Augustine, he, write these, he wrote these words about his mother Monica's prayer. You, O God, in the depths of your counsel, hearing the main point of her desire, regarded not what she then asked in order that you might make me what she desired. God, you didn't, you didn't answer the words of the prayer she was praying. What you answered was the desire of her heart that I would turn from my wicked ways to Jesus. Jesus shows us prayer in its highest form. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Even though, oh God, your will seems arbitrary. It's not what I want. It's not what I think would be best. But I submit in obedience to your will. Prayer, submission to the will of God, I think is one of the most difficult words in the Christian vocabulary. Submission. Not my will, but thine be done. And I've heard uh, preachers say, um, pray as though everything depends upon God. Work as though everything depends upon you. Well, that's okay. Except at the center of our lives, absolutely everything depends upon God. Who is going to stand before the grave of Jesus and cry, Jesus, come forth from the grave? 
As he had stood before the grave of Lazarus and cried, Lazarus, come forth. Who's going to do that for him if it isn't God? Everything depends upon God. There are 650 prayers in the Bible, 450 with answers. Not every prayer in the Bible is met with an explanation or an answer. Moses entered, prayed to enter the promised land, but he died on Mount Nebo. Did he make it into the promised land? I think he did. Jeremiah, Lamentations 344. Jeremiah says, God, you wrap yourself in a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. Have you ever felt like that? that your prayers were bouncing off of a cloud instead of reaching the throne? Habakkuk 1.2. Habakkuk says, How long shall I cry to you and you not hear or cry violence and you not save? Job 30.20. Listen to, you know the suffering of Job in the Old Testament. Listen to Job. Job says, I cry to you. And you don't answer. You just stand and stare at me. That's Job. And then we have the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. In Corinthians, Second <clears throat> Corinthians 12, he prays, Oh God, take this thorn in the flesh away. I don't know what it was. Nobody really knows for sure, but it was some kind of handicapping infirmity. <clears throat> God's answer was no. So I prayed again, God, please. And he said, no. And I prayed the third time, oh, God, please. And he said, no. And then God said, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. This, I put it up here because I want you to see it. This is really the heart of my sermon. This is what, this is the takeaway. When Satan puts on us, as he did on Habakkuk and Jeremiah and Job and Paul and Jesus Christ. The curse of infirmity and hardship and insult and suffering. And we not flag in the faith but hold true. We turn calamity into victory and become God's most powerful witnesses. When in the midst of suffering we do not abandon ship. We still trust in God. We still let him have his say. We become the most powerful witnesses that he has on this planet. Jesus, Jesus looks up from Gethsemane. And from Gethsemane, you can see the golden gate, the eastern gate into the city of Jerusalem, where he had just a few days before made a triumphal entry, and they had hailed him as the Messiah. Now, now he sees the torchlight of the Roman cohort and the temple guards the police coming out to arrest him it's just about over but Jesus has found in Gethsemane the strength that he needs to go into Jerusalem and to die I don't know what your prayer has been over your life for deliverance for peace, for harmony, for forgiveness, for humility, whatever it has been, oh God, save me. Well, that's where we come to this point in the sermon and the service. The door is flung open wide. He invites you to come. And he asks you to follow him into a watery grave for forgiveness. There's where the blood of the third cup 
is appropriated to our souls. In the grave of baptism, the blood of Christ cleanses. It's not just water. It's grace. There's more grace in the baptistry than there is water. Thank God. If you've not made that decision, then you come forward as we stand together and sing our closing hymn. Standing as we sing.